Hey friends, welcome to a Jesus Church podcast. You're listening to a teaching from our Sunday gatherings. We exist to join God in the renewal of all things by becoming a unified, spirit-filled family that follows the way of Jesus. And our desire is to come alongside you to encourage and equip you for that journey. So, if we can serve you in any way, please reach out to us through our website at ajesuschurch.org connect. As always, we hope that this teaching increases your hope and deepens your faith. Hi, I'm Kim, and this morning I'll be reading our text, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 1. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Thank you, Kim. Appreciate it. Very good. You guys can grab a seat. Well, good morning. For those of you that I've not met, my name is Weston. I'm one of the pastors here. I oversee our hospitality team, which, huge shout out to the hospitality team dinner coming up that they talked about. Please come. It's going to be tons of fun. Um, but today, uh, today's going to be good. You know, we started this series a couple weeks ago. Um, Richard kicked it off kind of by going big context, like talking about the covenant and the exile. Really good, really good um, um, intro into it. And then last week, Tim stepped into the passage. We're going to keep moving on. But here's what's going to happen today. We're going to kind of fly at 30,000 feet and we're going to go this way. And, and I am going to be getting to a place. I, I, there's, my hope is to land in a place where you're like, oh, that makes sense. And what he's talking about. But on the travel, there's going to be, it's like we're looking out the window of the airplane, seeing the different sights, seeing the mountaintops, seeing the lake, whatever it is. And there's going to be some theological points that we look at, but we just don't have the time to unpack. And so if you want to go deeper on any one of those things, there's a couple of ways to do it. One, we have a really incredible podcast. You can follow and Richard and the team go a little bit deeper on that. And secondly, we have these really great community pop-ups that we've been doing. Um, And I think this next one this week is at Chick-fil-A. As you're going out, if if you want to be involved, like talk to Nicole. She'll be at the Connect Space. She can tell you where, when, all that sort of stuff. But it's just a time to come around a table together with other people and to chat and to talk and to go a little bit deeper on some subject matter or just to chat and have a sandwich. Either way works, but that's happening this week. Um, We are going to be looking at the scripture and the text a little bit more. So if you need a Bible, you can put your hand in the air and got a couple people around the room that would love to hand you one um, for the morning. If you don't own one, you can definitely keep that. But a bit of context here with the book of Habakkuk. And again, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, it's the same. It probably is neither originally in the language, but they either both work, right? Either, either. Or as my daughter likes to say, tomato, tomato, when it actually isn't that at all. Like, no, that's actually right and wrong. Anyway, she's like, tomato, tomato. Like, no, no, that actually doesn't fit. But 
Habakkuk, Habakkuk is tomato, tomato, either, either. It's one of the 12 books in the Old Testament considered minor prophets. Okay, we have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai. There's 12 of them. Four Old Testament prophets are called major prophets. Growing up, I always thought it was because the minor prophets weren't as good as the major prophets. They just weren't as accurate. It has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with their ability. It just simply is length of book. And Habakkuk being only three chapters long, man, it is punchy. It's quick. It's pretty powerful. A couple things um, about Habakkuk. It was not written to us, meaning that when it's being written down, it does not have in mind USA 2024. It doesn't have in mind our culture, our climate, our politics. It doesn't have in mind any of that. However, it was written for us, meaning um, as we read it, it actually is going to force us to parallel some of the things that were going on with some of the chaos that we see around us. It's, it's like a pattern that we start to see. And so it's going to help us think about, boy, this is how Habakkuk stepped into this. Is there a way that maybe I could do the same in this way? So it wasn't written to us. It was written for us. And if you didn't get a chance to hear last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. But I want to just catch you up to speed really quick because where we take off today is right on the heels of where Tim ended last week. And so Habakkuk starts chapter one, verse two. How long, Lord, must I call for help? This moment of him crying out, he sees the injustice around him. He sees what's going on. And he's saying, God, when are you going to show up? How long must I cry out? And then God answers in verse five. He says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I am gonna do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people. So Habakkuk says, God, do something. And God says, okay, this. And Habakkuk says, what? And so that's the part we're looking at. The what? That part, that's today. And uh, because the reality is that what God said he's going to do is not what Habakkuk had in mind. What God said he's going to do is actually feels like to Habakkuk, he's making the problem worse. God said, Habakkuk said, hey, there's this injustice. And God says, okay, I'm going to take care of it by bringing the Babylonians, who are incredibly horrible, awful, evil, mean, cruel, and I'm going to bring them to, to create my justice, to help carry out my justice, which begs the question, does God use injustice? Again, we're flying and we're looking at a theological point. That's one to unpack later. Now, it's almost as if it seems like God is asking Habakkuk to trust him even if the pain doesn't go away. This thing's going on. God, why aren't you listening? God says, I am. Here's what I'm gonna do. Habakkuk's response could seem like, but that's worse. That actually doesn't, help. I don't know how you're going to do that. Seems like God is asking Habakkuk to trust him, even if the pain doesn't go away. And in this tension is where we're going to pick up today. Now, I'm going to take you on a bit of a journey, so follow me. My wife and I have been married for 18 years, almost 18 years now. Yep, it's pretty great. She's awesome. She is from North Carolina. So her fan, she was born and raised there. So she has a mom and dad that still live there. And her brother and brother's family lives in North Carolina there. She has an older sister and her family that lives in Chicago. She's got a younger sister and her family that lives in the Napa Valley. And then she has another younger sister and her family that lives in upstate New York. So her family is completely spread all over the country. But that wasn't how they intended it. 
as they were being raised and brought up, they were really close, really tight, really sweet, good, good friends. And now they feel spread. It wasn't the intent. There's a little bit of grief in that that my wife walks through often. Now, we both feel called to this place. We feel called to be here. We feel called to be in Tigard in 2024. We feel like God has called us to be here and we would not wanna be anywhere that we don't feel God has absolutely called us to be. But it doesn't mean that we can have lament and grief over something that we also know this is exactly where God has us right now. There's a tension and it's okay to hold it, but we're not good at that. I'm not good at that. And so what we do, because, because of that grief in our family, because of, because of that thing, we travel. I try to travel as much as we can to go visit family. We're always going somewhere, either a road trip or an airplane trip. We're trying to get somewhere to go visit so that Jenny and her family, it's a little bit of a way to like, to like soothe the grief, to kind of like help step in, like we're gonna go see family. That's really, really good. But, but it's hard. I mean, traveling with kids is hard, especially traveling with little kids is really, really hard. It's one of the most difficult things that parents can do, actually, because the first step is that if they're little kids, they don't know it's vacation. They, they just feel like they just need to do all the same things. They need to eat, they need to sleep, they need to be changed, only in a new space with new smells and new schedules and new... So it's all the same things that you have to do at home, just harder right? They don't say, and, and the reality is that like when you go someplace, you have to, whether you go for a day or a month, you have to pack the same stuff. You got to pack. So I, we were making a, a, a packing list when we were, when the kids were little, I was like, all right, babe, I'm going to make a packing list. What do we, what do I need to write down? And she says, oh, uh, everything. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, the whole world. We have to pack the whole world with us. Everything in our home has to go with us in two check bags and two carry-ons because that's just, that's the need, right? So you're like, okay, so we start, we pack, and there's just so much you have to pack to go. And then you get to the airport and then it feels like it's security. They just want you to unpack everything again. So it's like, so you're unpacking all of the pockets, right? And putting it all out there and everything on the table, which side note, young people, don't make fun of your dad wearing cargo pants anymore. You need to give him a break. Okay, because here's the deal. When he made a choice to wear cargo shorts for the first time, it wasn't a fashion choice. It was necessity. <laughs> It was necessity. And there was a time in your life where your moment was saved because of something that he had in his cargo shorts. So next time you see him wearing those, just say, thanks, dad. Appreciate it, right? So you unpack everything and put it out on there. You walk up and the person's like, all right, is everything out of your pockets? And you answer, I don't know. Like, I hope, but can I just walk through this thing? And then you tell me what's it still need to cut? Anyway, so you go through this whole thing, right? You get to the gate. You're now at the gate. Kids are hungry. But if you feed them the snacks that you packed for them, there'll be nothing for the airplane. So you go spend $72 so you can get a granola bar, right? And then your wife needs to use a restroom, which is fine. Except for, you know, the moment that she leaves, they're going to start boarding. It just happens. And so then you're sitting there like with your kids looking desperately for your wife to come. And by the time you get on the airplane, it just keeps continuing to go down. It's very, very difficult. In fact, there was one moment. I want to just tell you this. Then we're going to get back to this. There's one moment. I'm on the airplane and we had decided to splurge and get two extra seats for our kids. This was back when traveling wasn't as expensive. So we had two car seats. That was super fun, carrying two car seats over my shoulder, walking down, like saying hi to everybody in first class. That's a good moment, right? So we're walking down there. I buckle in the car seats, put both boys in there. Everything's golden. The one closest to the window, I'm on the aisle, drops the thing that they need. And I'm just like, okay, got this. 
So I'm trying to reach, right? It's like down over by the wall. So I'm reaching and I can feel the end of it. I'm like, okay, I got this. So I did one more reach. Something in my neck and shoulder went, and it was just the worst pain. Shot down my arm and up into my neck. And I was like, oh my goodness. So I'm sitting here on the airplane just like, oh my gosh, I can't feel anything in my arm. What am I gonna do? I don't know what happened. I don't know if I popped it out of a socket. I don't know, but I'm like, oh, this is a good moment. This is a great way to start this fun family vacation. And so I'm sitting here just like, I was like, Jesus, I'm gonna need you to do something because I can't do this with one hand. Like I'm gonna be, yeah, I need both wings to fly. <laughs> anyway, so I'm sitting there and I'm just like, okay, so I'm trying to fumble with the next thing and then I drop it at my feet. And so I'm like, oh my goodness. So I'm trying to like, I can't reach. So I reach down to grab it. And as I reach out, my head goes into the middle aisleway. And here comes a flight attendant and she was cooking. And she came ripping down and, and the knee, her knee, right above her knee, this really nice spot right there, okay, right there. As she was walking, it met the side of my head. Now, it wasn't like an MMA knee to the head, right? It was more like the, the perfect timing of my head coming over, resting right on her knee, actually pushed my head. Check this. I'm down here, the knee hits, it pops. There's a perfect alignment in my neck and shoulders. The most popping I've ever heard in my life. And I stood up. Whoa! Right? And she's like, she's like, oh, I am so sorry. And I'm like, no, thank you so much. That was incredible. And in that moment, I was like, all right, let's move forward. All that to say, I say all that to say that that you do a lot of things to help grief, <laughs> right? You do a lot of, you do things that are not fun to try to help step into an area of grief because none of us like to sit in it. And so we're willing to do all sorts of stuff, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard to try to, try to soothe grief. And I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't go try to see her family. It's, it's a good thing to do, but we're willing to step through a whole bunch of pain. We're willing to step through a whole bunch of hard, difficult things to try to help soothe that. It's just kind of how we're wired and how we're, how we're stepping into it. And that tension between pain exists in our life and God is a good, just, grace, grace, uh, graceful, gracious, merciful God. And we sit between these two tensions and those moments of looking at it, that's called lament. For, for my wife and for our family, like the, the pain that we sit in is the reality is that her kids don't get to be raised next to her parents. They don't get to see that. Everything that she dreamed of her ants don't get to be the fun ants every day in their life. It's pain. Now, this is a small one. It's not some massive. I know there's people in the room right now that have incredible, they're like, that's nothing compared to what, like, look, I know, I understand. I understand, I, I get it. There's a whole bunch of different varying types of degree of pain and grief. But when we sit in this brokenness of things that are not like, that's, that's hurts. And yet understand that God is a good, gracious God, a just God. Those two tensions, when we hold those two things properly, that is called Lament. And it's not something that I'm good at. I like to jump to the happy time. I like to jump to the fun things. I like to escape the valley of the shadow of death. Instead of the psalmist, he says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I like to escape it. 
And so when we think about that, remembering where we're at here, Habakkuk says, God, why aren't you listening? You need to do something with this injustice. God says, I am listening. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use an evil people to carry out my justice. And now we move into the passage where Habakkuk now responds back to that. He sees the pain, the evil, the brokenness. He understands that God is a good, just God, a holy, righteous God. And he's stuck between these two spaces. And he says this, looking down at verse 12. Sorry. Looking down at chapter 1, verse 2. Nope, chapter 1, verse 12. I was right. Um, trust your notes. It's right here. Chapter 1, verse 12. And really could be separated into three different parts. The scripture we're going to be reading today. Part 1 is step 1 here where, where, where he places God in his rightful place. Which all lament begins with God. All right? All lament begins with God. In fact, most prayers can begin this way. God, you're on the throne and I'm not. It's a great way to start when we go to Jesus. So in the beginning of this lament, he starts by placing God on the throne. Look at verse 12. He says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish He's calling on the Lord, the everlasting God. And actually some of the interesting language here, he's actually referencing a song that Moses sang in Deuteronomy 32. It's, he's reminding God and himself of who he is. God, you are this, and I know that you're this, but also God, you are this. You are from everlasting to everlasting. Lament begins with God. And then we move to part two where he expresses the brokenness. This is the part of the lament where you actually bring that situation to God, Right? Look down at verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? In verse 14 and 15, he compares mankind to fish of the sea. Okay, so without a ruler, he talks about how, basically describing how merciless and how evil the Babylonians are. Look at verse 14. You've made people like fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. And the wicked foe, talking about the Babylonians, pull them up with hooks and he catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his drag, drag net and he rejoices. Verse 16. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Describing how the Babylonians enslave people, getting rich off the backs of those they capture. And then in verse 17, he says, is he to keep on emptying his net and destroying nations without mercy? Basically saying, God, are you going to keep letting them do this? Is this pain going to keep on going? Is this injustice ever going to end? Are you going to let them keep on going? This is the pain. This is the brokenness. And you can almost hear the frustration in his voice and the anger and the pain in his voice. And part of his outrage is how can such a good God use such bad people? And, and the theological question that, that this is pushes us all into the next is can, can God use injustice? And I, and I think the Sunday school answer is yes, because he's God. But I think the reality that we all know is that it's way easier to say that than it actually is to live it and to actually believe it. Then we move into part three. And now he's waiting for God to move. The response here is quite amazing. He's not wondering if God will respond. And that's, I guess that's one of the things I love about Habakkuk. He's never in the book does he question if God is even real. He never questions the existence of God. He never wonders, like, God, are you even out there? Are you, are you even listening? He actually is just saying, God, it's just a matter of time. I, I, it's not if you're listening, but 
but that you are and then when you're going to do something or when you're going to respond. So, so chapter two, verse one, he says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say, not if, what he will say and what answer I am to give to this complaint. I, I love the word picture here. I stand at my watch, station myself on the rampart. The analogy is that of a soldier standing watch on a wall of a city looking out. Imagine being in wartime, knowing that, that at any moment the enemy could attack and your role is to stand there and to watch and to look at the horizon, look at the tree line, look at all the spaces waiting for anything to move, waiting for something, you're watching you're anticipating something happening. It actually reminds me of that passage in Psalm, Psalm 130. He says this, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for morning. And to emphasize it, he says it again, more than watchmen wait for morning. Can you imagine how much you would be waiting for morning in the middle of the night as you're in the middle of a battle, middle of wartime, and you're just looking for any movement in the dark, anything, anything. And you're just hoping for that sun just to start to rise so you can at least see a little bit further, a little bit longer. It's not a chillax, relax. I'm just chilling up here in a sea. I'm, no, you're standing watch. It's anticipation. You're, you're exhausted from just watching. Right? That's the sort of thing that he's calling out to you. This is what he's saying, this is what I'm gonna do because all lament begins and ends with God. And if it doesn't, then it's just simply a complaint. Now, a complaint is nothing more than pointing at what you don't like and saying, I don't like it. It's a complaint. And we have all varying degrees of what we like and don't like. And so if we start and end, we're like, that thing, I don't, I don't like that thing. And we just leave it in that space. Well, that's just simply a complaint. Now, it's like, it's like taking the passage out of Psalm 23. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it sucks. That's a complaint. It's just leaving it in that moment. Now, here's the deal. Not all complaint is wrong. Sometimes complaint can actually, sometimes us noticing that we don't like something actually can spur is like step one almost of actually then going to the father with it saying, hey, this thing, right? But just complaint in and of itself, just grief in and of itself, just brokenness in and of itself can almost create a bit of bondage where we find ourselves a little bit stuck almost focused on the things that we like or don't like or the things that hurt us or don't hurt us. And we find ourselves in our own world of grief and brokenness, oftentimes even having it become a bit of an identity piece for us to say, what is it, like, this is the only thing that I can focus on right now. And listen, I don't mean to, to diminish or to, to make small grief and brokenness and evil. It's so real and I get it because we live in a broken and fallen world. And there's, there, I know that there's some of you in the room today that have gone through pain and grief and brokenness and are, may currently be going through that stuff that I will never go through. I get that, I get that. But when we keep stuck in this, in this downward spiral of just focusing on that grief, then what begins to come out of us is angst and frustration and pain. But when we sandwich the pain, the grief, the brokenness, between the reality that God is on the throne and the reality that he's working, even if I don't see it, now that's lament. 
Because sometimes we can pray for things. Sometimes we can call to the Father for things. Sometimes we can lay out everything. God, I need your help. And it feels like nothing is happening. And it may even feel like it's getting worse. All lament begins and ends with God. And I think, I think most of us in the room this morning can understand that. Like, oh yeah, that makes, I, I get that here. I get that. I think the problem that we have, let me say it this way, the problem that I have, and you can share this with me or not, the problem that I have is the waiting. Because lament isn't just hoping for a fix. Lament isn't just hoping for success, hoping to get out of the other side. That's just optimism. Lament is standing with the pain and the grief and the brokenness and bringing it to Jesus and saying, okay. See, lament is what we do when we see and feel the evil and pain in our world, cry out to God for justice and wait expectantly for him to answer. Lament is waiting. I'm going to side note real quick. Um, what's really amazing about this reality of lament, about us bringing our lament to God, what's really amazing about this is that he is the one and only being who could take the full weight of all of our lament, of all of our brokenness, of all of our grief, of all of our pain. He can take it. We can't. We can't take the weight of all of our grief and all of our brokenness and all of our shame. And right now we live in a culture where we are more connected to the whole world's grief and pain and brokenness than we ever have been before. And there's a part of that that is really, really good. But I'm also gonna say that there's two things that we confuse often, sympathy and empathy. Empathy is when we actually take the weight and put it on our shoulders. When the weight of Jenny not being able to see her family is one that I feel as well. That's empathy. Sympathy is when I step into a conversation and I recognize the hurting that you're going through. I'm like, I see it. I see that pain. I'm so sorry. Let's cry out to Jesus together for that. But I personally am not taking the weight of it on my own shoulders because we aren't built that way. Humans aren't built to take the whole world's weight on our own shoulders, and yet we try, and it buries us. And what happens when we attempt to do that, when we see all of the world events that are going on, and we try to take that weight under our shoulders, what happens is our, we, we get completely filled up with empathy, we get crushed, and then those who need our empathy, our children, our spouses, get our sympathy. I'm so sorry that that's happened to you. Boy, that's tough. Let me pray for you. Instead of the other way around, and it's okay, like I, we need to be aware of what's going on in the world around us. We just need to recognize what we can contribute to that. And so the very best thing that we can often contribute, maybe there's specific things, but sometimes the very best thing is Jesus come. And then those that are my, in my nearest severe, I can actually carry the weight on my shoulders of what you're doing. We're only built to do that five, six, seven people. That's just human nature. But God is the one being who can take it all. He can take every single one of our, of our bits of pain and grief and brokenness, and he can take all of it on his shoulders 
at once. I mean, that moment on the airplane when God met me and gave me a chiropractic adjustment from Jesus, you know that moment right there? That moment, he was meeting me, but also he was meeting the person that was sitting in front of me. He was meeting the flight attendant, wherever she was at, and my boys. And then wherever you were at that day, he was meeting you and stepping into your needs. I don't understand it and I can't explain it, but I know it's true. And he does it. I was trying to find an analogy for this and the best one that I could think of, and it's not even that great because all analogies break down, but the best one I could think of is a couple Fridays ago, there was this incredible father-daughter dance that was held right here. There's a couple hundred dads in the room. They're all with their daughters. It was really good. Jeff Hall and his fam and the whole Young Life crew did an incredible job of pulling it off. But what, there was a moment when everybody, all the dads and daughters were dancing. There's different things going on. And then what came onto the screen was a sing-along from the movie Frozen, and it was the song, Let It Go. The moment it came on, all of the daughters looked right at their dads and all of the dads looked right at their daughters like, this is our song, this is our moment. And they all started connecting and sharing a moment that was very personal to both of them through a song that was played and it instantly connected everybody in that moment. And it's something like that with the Holy Spirit. He knows how to be so personal into your story that he knows what your song is. He knows how to connect with you and he knows how to share his weight, to carry your weight of your pain and your brokenness instantly right now. And he can do that for all of us. And it's beautiful. And that's a beautiful reality we get to live in. Again, I think we get that. But the problem is waiting. See, lament's not about a quick fix. It's actually about the waiting. I was listening to this teaching from Bridgetown last week and Tyler State and the pastor over there did this incredible, kind of unpacked a little bit of waiting that we see in scripture. It was super fascinating. I mean, when we read scripture, we see a God whose timing isn't our timing, whose ways are not ways, thoughts are not our thoughts, right? We see a God who is trustworthy, true, but sometimes we see a God that just feels like it's slow to respond. Like there's lots of waiting. Sure, there's, there's moments of immediate response, but often it seems like God is not as hurried as we are. I mean, there's just a couple things right here. In the Old Testament, I think we're, yep, in the Old Testament, Israel waits through 400 years of slavery, 40 years in the wilderness, seven years in exile. After the last prophet spoke in the Old Testament, it was 400 years before Jesus, 30 years from when he came until when he began his ministry, three days of waiting between his death and his resurrection, and an estimated 50 days between the promise of the Spirit and the coming of the Spirit. A slow God and awaiting people is a theme that we cannot ignore through scripture. Abraham and Sarah waited a hundred years for a child. Joseph waited two years in prison. Jeremiah and Isaiah died while waiting on God to deliver his people from exile. Simeon and Anna waited a lifetime before they got to meet the Messiah in the temple. Scripture from beginning to end shows us a God who promises are true and trustworthy and slow. And so Habakkuk stations himself like a watchman on a tower with all the pain, grief, brokenness, and evil around him waiting for God. I, God, I know you are on the throne. This hurts. I'm waiting for you. That's lament. That's lament. And in the waiting, I just wonder if that's where God really wants to meet us. The thing about this that can be so hard sometimes is that often when we lament, when we cry out to God, when we wait, it takes so much longer than we want and that can begin to feel so desperate. 
It's like that prayer from King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles. He's basically, not basically, he exactly says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. Sometimes the suffering that you're going through seems to get worse. Sometimes the prayer feels like it's being unanswered or that God is ignoring it. And so often the people that I talk to that have walked away from Jesus, this is the reason. It's like I prayed. I prayed and God and nothing happened. So the opposite is so true. God is still doing something. Remember, lament is not customer service. Like, hey, this coffee is bad, so fix it and make me a new one. Great, and now I can walk away with my new one. That's customer service. Lament is this hurts and I'm gonna wait for you. And so we wait. And it is a spiritual discipline to wait. I mean, there's times when he answers quickly. I mean, we can all talk about that, right? But then there's times when, when it's longer than we want. And maybe you've been praying something your whole life and God hasn't answered it in the way that you thought he would yet. I know for me, like, there's, there's even relationships in my own family. I've been praying for eight years for God to step into and do something. And we're waiting. But I know God's on the throne. I know that he's working even when I don't feel it. So I will take the grief, the pain, the brokenness, and I will stand on the wall I will say, okay, God. Because you know what you're not doing? You know what a soldier is not doing when he's standing on the wall waiting and watching? He's not trying to fix anything. He's not trying to control the situation. He's just waiting and watching. I just really feel like today that's a word for somebody in this room. The grief, the brokenness, the pain that you're going through, maybe it's time to stop trying to fix it and just wait for God. Jenny's family lives across the country. Her parents don't get to watch our kids grow up. Her sisters don't get to be those fun aunts, but she knows that God's on the throne. She knows he's still working, and so we wait. Maybe for you, it's a diagnosis. Maybe for you, it's a loss of a job. Maybe it's a loss of a child. Whatever that pain, whatever that grief, look, I, I get it. I think one of the things that keeps us from lament is that often we compare our grief with somebody else's and say, well, that's not, my grief is this, but their grief is way worse, so I'm good. But the reality is that just because our grief, and there's different varying levels of grief, yes, absolutely, but that doesn't mean that your grief, even if you feel like somebody else is worse, shouldn't be lamented and brought back to Jesus. That's a real thing. Remember, we don't want to find ourselves in bondage of our grief having the grief be our identity, having the brokenness just be the thing that we live with. But we rather sandwich it between the reality that God is on the throne and I know he's working even if I don't see it and God hears my grief. And now we start to feel life in the waiting. Now we start to feel like it's more than just us trying to do it because it is. We don't feel alone in it. And grief can be so isolating. So what is that for you? What is that pain? What is that grief? 
What is that brokenness? And maybe it's not for you personally. Maybe you're watching somebody else go through something and that's the thing that you need to lament. That's accurate. It's like a Habakkuk. He's like, he's seeing the injustice around him. And he's like, God, you got to do something. It wasn't personal. It was, for, it was for the other people. Maybe there's something there for you. It's like, I'm watching that relationship or I see that, that moment, that diagnosis, whatever it is, where it's like, I need to lament that. We, that's the process that begins, that gets us to the wall where we take all of that pain and we stand on the wall, we station ourselves on the ramparts and we say, okay, God, I'm gonna wait. You see, it's not about the outcome, it's not about the fix. When you stand on the wall, you get a different perspective and the perspective is that it's not about really the situation. It's about a relationship with the almighty God. And when we recognize that the, that, that, that lament is about trusting the king to move, that's when our heart starts to shift and open up before him. And that's why in the waiting, I just wonder if that's when our souls start to grow up. We start to take those deep breaths that you can only take when you've walked through the valley of the shadow of death, knowing that he is there. Because the psalmist doesn't just say, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will guide me. He will lead me. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.